Welcome to the April 8th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today is the 100th episode this year. I I think we all need to eat a cupcake or a donut or something in order to celebrate this milestone. Um, I just want to thank you all for joining me on this journey. Uh, You are what makes this possible. But let's get back to it. Today's reading is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 16 and Luke chapter 10. Hopefully you've already uh, spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. First Samuel chapter 15, essentially this chapter is about Saul being rejected as Israel's king by the Lord himself. <clears throat> Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I, the Lord said, I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. I'm telling you, after I uh, read that again for the hundredth time, I once again said, goodness. <laughs> I mean, th- this is this is horrible. Um, Saul wasn't merely to attack the, the army of the Amalekites. He was to kill all of their men, all of their women, all of their infants, and all of their nursing babies, as well as their animals. But... One of the things that we need to remember is that if this idea was formulated in the mind of a person, they would be a tyrant. They would be a beast. They have absolutely no right to take those lives. Every, uh, you know, just about every civilized society says that you have the right to attack the other army, you do not have the right to attack their civilians. I mean, as we're watching the devastation that Russia has wreaked on Ukraine, and we see how they have attacked civilians, so many civilized countries are rising up and say, this is morally wrong. So if it was, if this, what, what I read a while ago in verses 1 through 3 about not only attacking the army, but killing the men, all the women, all the children, all of the nursing babes, if that was brought up by a man, it would be morally evil. Yet... This was God's idea. God is the one who gives life, and God is the one who takes life away. So when you die, it'll be because God has said your time is up, and he calls you through death's door. So he had determined, as God, that the Amalekites' time was up, and he was calling them through death's door. And he was using the Israelites as the means to accomplish that end. God had the right to call for the lives of everyone. But I also want you to realize that the Amalekites who were going to die as a result of this command were not the ones who had attacked the Israelites. In fact, this was about 400 years after that event. 
But I want you to realize also that there's a principle in Scripture that sometimes God sees us as individuals, but sometimes He sees us as a group. So, He might sometimes bring judgment on a nation for what it did many, many years before ago. Uh, maybe generations before, they did something morally evil, and it was never reconciled, it was never made right, and so therefore judgment comes on the nation later on. It's not God punishing someone else for someone else's sin. It's just that God sees the group as having committed that offense, so God brings his judgment on that group. Well, Saul goes into battle and defeats the Amalekites, but listen to verses 8 and 9. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, so he didn't destroy him, and he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. And then we read in verses 10 and 11, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. This is God talking. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. When we see the word regret, God says in verse 11, I regret that I made King Saul. Well, what is regret? Regret happens whenever we realize that we made a bad decision, right? But one of the things that we need to understand is when God uses our vocabulary, what he's doing is he's he's trying to speak in terms that we can understand, but we need to realize that he's really not experiencing it the way that we do. God never, ever, ever experiences regret like we do. Just realize that when God describes his feelings on the pages of Scripture, he's doing so in our language, but the way he feels it is very different than us. What does God's regret look like? I'm not sure, because we, uh, because we know that God never makes a bad decision. Um, it, but, but God, as best he could in our language, God's not limited, but he's limited in, in how we can understand as best he could conveying his feelings to Samuel said, I regret that I made Saul king. Um, then we read in verse 12 that Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument to himself. Set up, set up a monument to himself. So in verse 11, God is saying, I regret that I made him king. I, I think the guy stinks. And in verse 12, the very next verse, Saul is building a monument to himself. You know what the principle there is? The principle is that we can think much more highly of ourselves than God thinks of us. But the, the converse is true as well. There are so many people that think so far less than what God thinks about them. The, the goal of the Christian is to develop a biblical mind, and we are to read in Scripture what God says and what He says of us and what He thinks of us and the things that He said are true of us, especially those of us that are saved. We're not just merely created in His image, as wonderful as that is, but even lost people are that. We read in, in John 1 that we have the right to call ourselves children of God. There's so many things that are true of us. We as Christians need to make sure that we are thinking of ourselves the way that God thinks of us. And I'm telling you that no matter what you think of yourself, 
if you dig into Scripture and find out what God has said about you and that's what you believe, your mindset will be so much better. So much better. But Saul's messed up. <laughs> God's regretting that he made him king, and Samuel, at the same time, is making a monument to himself. <clears throat> when Samuel met Saul... The king said that King Saul said that he had obeyed the Lord, but that the animals uh, were spared so that they could offer them to the Lord as a sacrifice. And I just want to say, liar, liar, pants on fire. You're, you're telling, you're not telling the truth, Saul. You're lying. And then Samuel questions why King Saul, he just read right through it. He saw right through it. He questioned why King Saul could so brazenly have disobeyed the Lord. And then Saul responds that he was obedient to the Lord in spite of the fact that he clearly was not. And then Samuel said something that should be underlined in your Bible. It is in mine. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? And so... For us, we don't offer burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings and sacrifices. What this is saying is, does the Lord take pleasure in our worship as much as in obeying the Lord? You know, just because we show up on Sunday and maybe sing a song or two and then sit and listen to a message and listen during the prayer, just because we're doing that, if we're not being obedient to the Lord, He doesn't take pleasure in our worship. He actually values obedience much more than our worship. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, ooh, that's what he calls disobedience is rebellion. So when you and I disobey the Lord, we're in rebellion. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. It's like the sin of witchcraft. When we disobey the Lord, it is just like the sin of witchcraft. And defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. And then he says to uh, Saul, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul heard this, and he was distraught. He immediately proclaimed to Samuel that he has sinned. He said, I've sinned. And he acknowledged uh, what his lack of trust in the Lord had done to him. He said, I was afraid of the people. I was responding to the people. It was them. It wasn't me. It was them. That They're the ones that caused me to disobey the Lord. Once again, he's playing the blame game. He wasn't leading Israel. He was following the Israelites, even though he was the leader. But he was just a positional leader. Samuel refused to go back with Saul, even after Saul's request. And then, uh, Sam essentially, Samuel was wiping his hands of King Saul. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul grabbed hold of Samuel's robe. And apparently he was holding pretty tight, pretty tight, because Samuel's robe tore. And it's as if, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. You know, have you ever had one of those times whenever something bad happened and something bad happened after that and it just wouldn't stop? Bad things just kept happening? That's what's going on here. After Saul's Samuel's robe got torn, after Saul accidentally tore it because he held on to Samuel's robe as Samuel was walking away, turned to walk away, listen to verses 27 through 29. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he's not a man who changes his mind. 
Saul pleaded again with Samuel to please come back with him so that he could worship the Lord. However, it seems that Saul was doing this so that he could save face. It was He was so stinking insecure that he wanted Samuel to go back so that it would, even though he knew that he was rejected as king, that he didn't want anybody else to know that. And he wanted Samuel to go back with him so that the two of them could show up, the king and the prophet. So Samuel did comply, but when he showed up, he saw King Agag of the Amalekite still alive and probably arrogant and feeling safe. And so in verses 34 and 35, it says Samuel went to Ramah and Samuel uh, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul after um, after uh, Samuel had killed uh, King Agag. Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to this, uh, even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And this chapter ends, I'm telling you, on a sad, sad note. Israel's king is now rejected, but the next chapter introduces us to the young man who would be the next king of Israel. Chapter 16. It begins with verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel is very concerned about the the Lord's instruction that he's just heard. If Samuel's trip to Jesse's house is discovered by Saul, since Saul knows that a new king is going to be anointed, and almost certainly Samuel's going to be the one to anoint him, then Samuel's his his trip to Jesse's house is going to be uh, found out and Samuel's going to get killed. And so the Lord tells Samuel to involve a little deception. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. And uh, one of the things we learn from this and other places is in some circumstances, especially when health and well-being are threatened, deception is appropriate. Okay. So as Samuel invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice, Samuel um, begins to look over Jesse's sons to determine if he can observe who the Lord has chosen. Um, But it seems as if Samuel was looking at the external Um, Saul was determined to be an impressive, remember, an impressive young man, but solely because of his height. So the Lord needed to speak truth into Samuel's heart. Listen to verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about the oldest son, Eliab. Humans do not, the Lord says, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. People see what's outward. The Lord looks at the inside. He looks at our character. So, as Samuel inspects all of Jesse's sons from the oldest to the youngest, or at least the second to the youngest, but he thought the youngest, the Lord makes it clear that he hasn't chosen any of them. And I would imagine that Samuel was probably in a perplexed 
perplexed state. And uh, Samuel asked Jesse if there were any more sons. He's probably thinking, no, there's not. And he's thinking, did I overlook something? But shockingly, Jesse uh, said that he did have a son and that he did not invite his youngest son to the sacrifice that they were all at right then. So he left him, he had left him in the field tending the sheep. So listen to verses 12 and 13. So Jesse sent for him. He had, a, he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Okay, so we're talking about superficial stuff again. It's not necessarily bad, but it is outward. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. Now, the Lord didn't say anoint him because of his beautiful, I'm looking at the quote, beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. He said anoint him because the Lord was looking at his heart. It's 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Okay, so this was just a family affair. Nobody else in Israel knows about this. This In the presence of his brothers, I would suspect Jesse, his dad, is probably there as well. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. So the Holy Spirit came powerfully on David. He's now equipped to lead Israel. He only lacks the opportunity. So listen to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. It, it kind of pans away from this scene with Jesse and his, and his sons, and it now goes to Saul. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. Okay, so let's stop there just for a second. This is Old Testament theology. This is Old Testament theology. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of everyone who's trusting in Jesus for eternal life. When we get to Romans 8, when we get to a few other passages, we're going to see very clearly that Jesus sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and one of the things the Comforter does is he comes to live inside of the individual's body who trusts in Jesus. Every single person who is trusting in Jesus is inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will not leave. But... In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit merely came on people to empower them to do what God had instructed. This was not a salvation thing. This was just empowering someone to do what God had called them to do. It didn't even guarantee that that person was saved. Just as quickly as the Spirit came in the Old Testament, he could leave. And in fact, that's why in one of the Psalms, David said, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's, you know, and, and there's even a, a hymn that's sometimes sung in churches, uh, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. D don't sing that song. Don't sing that song. That's not New Testament theology. That's Old Testament theology. We don't have to plead with God for him not to take our spirit away. That's what happened in the Old Testament. That's, that's not New Testament theology, okay? So, the Spirit of the Lord did leave Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 14, but he left him because the Spirit did not come on Old Testament people to validate salvation. Instead, the Spirit came on people to empower them to do what God had willed for them to do, told them to do, and if they rejected the Lord, they fell away from the Lord like Saul, then God would remove his spirit. Doesn't mean they were lost. It never meant that they were saved in the first place, okay? So it also says that an evil, in verse 14, it says an evil spirit was sent from the Lord to torment him. So the evil spirit, and we're led to believe that this is actually demonic. This is a demon. The evil spirit was permitted and allowed by the Lord to torment Saul. Um, the Lord 
uh, actively wills things, actively does things, and then there are things that the Lord, we use the word passively, allows to happen. And so we would put this in the realm of the Lord sent this, but really it's his passive will that's allowing this to be sent. Um, and this is not merely mental illness, um, but I think the evil spirit certainly made things worse. Uh, one of Saul's servants suggested that they look for someone who could play the lyre. It's kind of like a harp. And when the evil spirit overtook him, he could listen to the music and it could soothe his mind. And uh, Saul agreed to this and commanded that someone should be found to play music for him. And listen to verse 18. One of the young men answered, these are one of Saul's servants, one of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Um, almost certainly none of them knew that the, of the fact that David had been anointed. This was only done with Samuel and that family, and almost certainly that family's not going to get that message out. They don't want their, their brother, their son, to die. And so almost certainly this is just the Lord's providential care that's causing them to reach out to David to bring him into close contact with the king. Um, but almost certainly they did not know that he was the next anointed and had already been anointed as the next king. Um, I can only imagine the terror that came to Jesse's heart when a messenger from the king came to take David back to the king. I mean, I just wonder if Jesse was thinking, this dad was thinking, had King Saul heard that David had, has been anointed uh, as the next king? Did Samuel say something? Did one of my sons, jealous of David, did they say something? Will, will he feel threatened to, uh, to uh, hurt my son, hurt my son David? Will he feel threatened by him? Um, and will I ever see my son again? Will I ever see David again? But I'm telling you, one of the things we realize is Jesse's fears would soon diminish because David not only played the harp for the king, we read at the end of this chapter that King Saul actually made David his armor bearer. So he is being mentored by a bad example, but he's being mentored and brought into what it looks like to be in royal life without even either one of them even really realizing it. And I don't know about you, but I love watching how God weaves the story together to accomplish his purposes. We just need to realize that God is doing the same things in your life and in my life. We just need to trust him and we need to obey him. After all, <laughs> there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, so Luke 10. So let's look at verses 1 through 12 where Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples. Uh, here, Jesus is not merely sending out his 12 apostles. He's done that before, but here he is sending out those 72 followers. But like he did before, Jesus tells them not to take anything. They were to trust in the Lord for their provision. I want you to know this is not normative, it's not presented as the way things should be, but it is a teaching moment that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And sometimes the Lord 
does that in some of us and some of his children where for one reason or another, whether it's financial or something else, we realize we are in desperate need and that's an opportunity to trust him. It's easy to trust him whenever things are easy. In fact, I would argue we really don't have to trust him. At least we don't feel like we have to trust him when things are easy. It's when things are difficult that we trust in the Lord. And so in that sense, it's good when things get bad, right? Um, so these uh, 72, they were to heal, peop heal people and tell them about the kingdom of God. Uh, but if they entered, they were told, Jesus told them, if they entered a town and that town rejected them, they were to wipe off the dust from their sandals in that town in a public way and then leave. And then listen to what Jesus said, verse 12. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town, for the town that rejected the message of the kingdom. Um, Sodom, honestly, Jesus said it'd be more tolerable for Sodom. Well, Sodom had been destroyed about 2,000 years by the time Jesus said this. So how was Sodom's treatment more tolerable? It could mean that judgment in this life would happen but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying um, because uh, there was no ball of fire. There was nothing that came out of the sky to destroy those cities like it did Sodom. Uh, what I think it's referring to is in verse 12. It says, I tell you on that day. What day? I think it's the day of judgment. I think this tells us that there are not just individuals that will have a stricter judgment, but there are also places that will have a stricter judgment. The principle, it's better not to hear than to hear and reject the message. Look at verses 13 through 16. Jesus kind of elaborates a little bit more on this point. Um, in these verses, Jesus pronounces woes upon the cities that had heard his words and seen his miracles. And since they had been exposed to the truth and they rejected it, their judgment in eternity on the day of judgment would be much more severe than those who had never heard the message of the kingdom, never heard the gospel. Even though those who have never, get this, even though those who have never heard the gospel will spend eternity in hell, it's better not to hear than to hear and reject the gospel. If you hear, you're doubly responsible. I, I'm not using that as a mathematical equation doubly. I'm just saying it is clear that someone who has been exposed to the truth and rejects it is much worse off than the person who has never had access to that truth. Everybody ultimately is responsible, but the ones who hear the truth and reject it are going to get in more trouble. Um, and so in that sense, um, someone who is sitting on the pews of a church Sunday after Sunday and within their heart there is no love for the Lord, there's no love for His Word, there's no conviction over sin whenever they sin, they're not saved. And yet, they're continuing to expose themselves to truth, and yet they're not going to obey it. I'm telling you that this principle says that they are only increasing their judgment. Only increase. The answer is not to say, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to expose myself to, to a truth, because then you're still getting in trouble. It's just your trouble is worse. Why not just trust in Jesus? And, and then there is no judgment, only grace. 
In verses 17 through 20, uh, the 72 come back to Jesus. And listen to what he says in verses 17 and 18. It says, Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I bet they were on an adrenaline high. Their eyes were wide open, and they were just so excited, so excited. In verse 18, Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. They were impressed that they have had authority over demons in Jesus' name, and that Jesus said, that's only because the Trinity booted their leader, Satan, out of heaven so fast that his fall looked like lightning flashing across the sky. You have the ability to cast demons out? Well, I was the one that uh, put my boot on his rear end and sent him out of heaven. Of course, of course you have the ability in my name to cast demons out because I've defeated their leader. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus encouraged them. He, he tried to tone things down, try to reprioritize. Sometimes we can get excited about spiritual success, that we can get our, our thinking out of whack. And so Jesus encouraged them not to rejoice that they had access to power over demons. He wanted them to calm down. Listen to verse 20. However, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He said, be happy that you belong to the Father and that you get to enjoy him in this life and that you will spend eternity with him one day in the life to come. That's what you're to be excited about. Don't, don't, let, don't become someone who's excited about something at the expense of what is truly worth getting excited about. In verses 21 through 24, uh, Jesus tells us that he reveals the Father. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he offered up a prayer of thanksgiving to the Father. And in it, he expressed his gratefulness that he, Jesus, was sent to enable humanity to know the Father. I'm telling you, do you want to know the Father? Then get to know Jesus. In verses 25 through 37, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, there was a, quote, expert in the law of God, and this was a scribe, and he stood up, and this wasn't someone who genuinely wanted the answer. We're, we're told he wanted to test Jesus, wanted to test Jesus, and he asked what did he, he needed to do to get into the kingdom, essentially to get saved. And Jesus asked him what was written in the law uh, that he, after all, an expert in the law, should know. What's in the law? What are you supposed to do? The scribe apparently had been listening to Jesus previously, and so he said he didn't give specific laws, you know, all of the different laws. He said, ah, okay, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he was giving an answer that he'd heard Jesus give. Um, Jesus had stated this more than a few times. In verse 28, Jesus said, you, you've answered correctly. Good job. Do this and you'll live. Do those commandments and you'll live. Now, was Jesus saying that we get saved by obeying the law, the two greatest commandments? Is that what he's saying? We get saved by obeying the two greatest commandments? Of course not. The law was given to us to obey, but it also pointed out that we cannot obey it fully. We're going to break it repeatedly, daily. So the law's primary purpose was to send us to the cross for forgiveness. The law was to condemn us so that we would go to the cross for forgiveness. So Jesus sent this man to the law and said, hey, do this and you'll live. He wanted to bring about conviction in this man's heart. 
But the scribe wasn't about to be convicted because he wasn't humble, and he and we're actually told that he wanted to justify himself. And so he said, "Well, okay, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Who who is my neighbor? Who 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 is my neighbor?" And so he's he's sending it back to Jesus. He wants to get the heat off of himself. Well, Jesus is more than glad uh, to take that pressure. There's no pressure to Jesus, and so Jesus proceeds to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Essentially, it's about two Jewish men, leaders, religious leaders, who saw a man, probably a Jew, in because he was in Jewish territory, uh, saw a fellow Jew in desperate need. This man had been robbed. This man had been beaten. This man was almost dead. They saw a man in desperate need, and they did nothing about it. Maybe they offered up a prayer for him, but they did nothing about it. They walked on the other side of the road. Yet... A despised Samaritan. I'm telling you, racism, you think racism is bad now? You think that it's bad in some areas? Boy, it's nothing compared to what we read about uh, whenever we read the history of the, the, the relationship of the Jews and the Samaritans You know, in the first century. They wouldn't even walk through their territory. They would walk miles and miles and miles out of the way just to avoid going through each other's territory. They hated each other. And so Jesus created a hero in his story, and this hero was a a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan. And Jesus said that this Samaritan saw this Jewish man in need, so this Samaritan, this despised Samaritan, put his personal plans on hold and spent his own money to help this man in need. Jesus said in verses 36 to 37, actually asked the question, which of these three, the, the priest, the Levite who walked on the other side and did nothing, or this Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked, verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him, he said, the scribe said. Uh, you know, the scribe couldn't even say Samaritan. He just said, uh, the one who showed mercy to him. He wouldn't even acknowledge that it was a despised Samaritan that did it. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Jesus is just pointing him to the law, not for salvation, but the law drives us to the cross. To love our neighbor means we care for them in tangible ways, especially in their time of need. But if we really look at it, we realize that none of us ever fully comply with that law. And that sends us to the cross, which is a good thing. The chapter ends with uh, verses 38 through 42, with Jesus spending some time with uh, those who would be his dear friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But the point of this story is that Martha was distracted by a lot of tasks that she was doing for Jesus while Mary was listening restfully as she was with Jesus. Martha was doing things for Jesus, and she got angry at Mary who was with Jesus. And just listen to verses 41 and 42. The Lord answered her, you know, because Martha was angry. Tell Mary to get in here and help me do some things for you. Now get, get supper ready. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. You're just doing a lot of stuff, verse 42. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away for her. I'm not going to tell her to get up. Friend, it's so easy to think that we need to be doing things for Jesus. There are certainly times when we must obey. Uh, We must be busy doing the Father's business, of course, but we must not neglect the time we are spending with Jesus. 
And I'm not just talking about our morning Bible reading and prayer time. I'm saying we need to learn to live every single moment of our day with Jesus. And don't be surprised that if, if you learn to live each moment with Jesus and not merely doing things for Jesus, it's going to put a smile on your face and a song in your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we so often act like Martha. Uh, we think that in order to be pleasing to you, we've got to be doing stuff. But we were reminded in, in Luke 10 that you were very pleased when we simply, when Mary was simply spending time with you, and you're pleased when we spend time with you. So help us to look for those quiet times during our day when we can give you our undistracted attention. But then, Lord, teach us how to live each moment of the day with a conscious awareness of your presence with us. Help us to live the moments of our day with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that it's helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.